This is Powers on Policing, the podcast that presents an inside look at the dedicated people who work in the criminal justice system. Your host is Bill Powers, retired state police detective lieutenant, active educator, and published author. Hello, I'm Jordan Rich, and this is part two of an extensive interview with Terry Cunningham, the Deputy Executive Director of the International Association of Chiefs of Police. I've got a question for both of you. Very honored to ask this question, and it's a tough one, but when the defund the police movement got going in the mid part of 2020, funding did wind up being cut and police forces were diminished and we saw the result, crime just spiked hugely. And now some of these same mayors who did the defunding are asking for money to refund. Let me start with you, Bill. Your take at the time, a lot of people thought, oh, this is a revolutionary, important step forward. Most other common sense people like like me thought, not a good idea. What was the take on your part? I felt like I get hit with a with a pipe, to be honest with you. And and at the time I wasn't I wasn't an active police officer, but still I saw how devastating this is. Like, are we gonna take the money and we're gonna give it to for mental health workers? I'm all for having mental health workers working alongside of us. But where do you think they are? Is there a big arena somewhere full of unemployed social workers and, and helpers that wanna come out and help? The answer to that is no. So we need to train people to be able to be in that position, first of all. Don't just take the money away and throw it at some somebody else that, that isn't equipped for it. Second of all, in the kind of calls that we respond to, that you know somebody's in a psychosis, somebody is having some mental breakdown, a social worker's not going to walk in on that without the police being there. So it was still going to be answering those calls. Mm-hmm. Do we need to answer all those calls? Probably not. But anything that where there's a potential for violence, you're not gonna. We're not gonna say to a social worker, "Why don't you just go in there and see if you can deal with this?" And we'll we'll walk away right. and leave it up to you. So so some of those like like you said, the, the broad brush statement. Let's just cut forty million dollars out of their budget and see how they go from that. Yeah, great question. And I think to, to Bill's point, right. So over the year the years, you know, more and more and more have been laid at the feet of the police, whether it's mental health, whether it's substance abuse, or whether it's truancy. Uh, you name the issue. When people don't know what to do with it in society. They say, hey, hey, you know what, we'll give it to the police and the police will figure it out. And, and, and you know, cops are incredibly ingenious, and they will. And people call 911 for just about anything, and a cop goes and they figure it out. And, um, you know, when, when you look at, you know, again, our elected representatives that, that think that, well, if I call 911 and the police show up, and we can cut back on training or we can cut back on equipment or we can cut back on, you know, whatever it is, on the funding to the police department, they still show up and they still do a great job. Um, you know, sometimes we're our own worst enemies because we continue to do that. And one of the things that we've, we, we said over and over again during the defund movement, look, we, we completely support you taking some of these things off of our plate and putting them probably where they you know, belong and where, where you know, other people can do a better job you know, managing them, whether it's mental health issues or you know, substance abuse or whatever it is. Um, but it doesn't mean that, you know, to Bill's point, that you can just start you know, defunding the police and you're going to have this, this cadre of mental health providers that are going to show up and are going to want to work you know, on a midnight shift or on an evening shift or weekends and holidays and all the things that, you know, that, that cops do. Um, so it, it, it was an interesting, it was an interesting time period. And your, to your point, Jordan, of course, the pendulum starts to swing back, back as you start to see violent crime rise. You saw, you know, homicide rates, you know, go through the roof as a result of it. Um, you see the carjackings and all kinds of juvenile, you know, rising juvenile crimes as a result. But the interesting thing for me is now that we've moved out of the, the defund phase, if that's not working, now there's, active, there's actually an active movement 
for demoralize the police. So instead of defund, we've gone to demoralize. So what can we do to make sure whether it's social media, whether it's, you know, deep fakes and, you know, putting pictures out there. Yeah, it, of course, these, these videos of, of uh, these high-profile use of force cases are going to keep, you know, showing up because it's, it, it, any, any use of force by a cop is going to be ugly and it's going to be really difficult for people to see that haven't had to do it, right? Um, and what we're seeing is that, you know, anything that they can do to demoralize the police and keep people from, you know, coming into the profession and getting people out, it used to be, and I think Bill would agree agree with me, when you first came on the job, you know, 20, 30 years ago, you were worried about either getting hurt or getting killed, right? Or, you know, somebody on your agency getting hurt or getting killed. Now you're afraid of going to jail, right? You make that split second decision at two o'clock in the morning, um, you know, and you got all that fight or flight and all the physiological things that go with it and auditory blocking and tunnel vision and, you know, all those things, you make that split second decision and somebody sits in an armchair someplace and, and looks at that, you know, 50 times at all different angles. And then says, Hey, you know what? I, I think, you know, this person should be indicted or this person should be charged and you end up going to jail and you lose everything. So the whole, you know, environment in policing has changed. Uh, I've seen, a couple of different things. When I took the test to come on back in the 70s, 17,000 people took it. This last test, it was under 6,000. We've run a, a program now for 40 years called the Junior Trooper Program that would run two weeks and it would overflow. And we, we couldn't, we, we were turning people away and not because we wanted to, we just didn't have the room for them. It'd be 100 in each class. We didn't have a class this year because there was no appetite for it. There were some that did, but it was, it was like under 50 people and they, they canceled it. That's the youth coming up that don't want to come here. Those are parents who don't want to send their kids to a program that they were clamoring to get into. Um, and so that, that's the, as you said, that's the moralizing part to, to being a police officer t- today. And we're seeing, you know, maybe we'll get into this a little bit later on, but we're talking about um, um, retention issues being one of our biggest issues. You're seeing guys now that, that hit that number where they can retire saying, see you later. I'm going to go mow lawns. I'm going to go uh, get my plumbing license. I'm going to go, you know, do something else because I, I, the pressure of this, not just on the individual officer, but on the family. That's where I'm seeing the big hit coming that families don't want their, their – their moms and their dads involved in law enforcement anymore because it's putting pressures on. It's a huge challenge, and I, I will ask you both to comment on, uh, you know, how do you overcome that huge mountain of media, social and otherwise, that is constantly beating that drum that, you know, being a police officer is is not a noble profession anymore and uh, the pressure's too tight and you're forced to be on camera every moment of every day. So what is the solution? I know in Florida... Back a few years ago, DeSantis paid $10,000 bonuses, I believe. He's saying that in his campaign rhetoric now, and retained more police officers. Outside of that, is there anything, Terry and Bill, that you think should be done and can be done? This is the the number one issue. So if we do listening sessions around or around the world, but around the country, right? Um, where we go into, you know, we'll go, uh, we'll come to New England and we'll fill the room with, you know, 60 police chiefs and then we'll go around and we'll ask them three questions. What's the number, uh, number one issue, you know, facing your agency? What's the number one issue facing the profession? And what can IACP to do, do to help you, right? Right now, the number one issue is recruitment and retention. 100%. You know, you see um, Metro DC, you know, PD, they're down over a thousand officers. 
Um, it's just, it's incredible right now. You just can't get people into the profession. And the problem with what, you know, Governor DeSantis did in Florida is it's not solving the problem. You're going from one agency, you know, to go from one state to another state or from one agency to that agency. There's, there's, there, there's a limited pool of candidates right now, the folks that want to be cops. And we're all fishing from the same pond. And you, there's, there's nobody restocking it, unfortunately. So when you see, like, a Seattle, they're doing a great job, you know, incentivizing people to go there. They get signing bonuses. They get housing bonuses. They get their, their paying um, for your education, uh, your loan re- repayment. Um, but unfortunately, all they're doing is stealing from all the agencies in the area. And, you know, when we talk about this now, ICP, we, we did a whole um, uh, report in, uh, on this. Um, and, and the issue is going to be, this is going to be generational, Jordan. This is not something that we are going to solve overnight. We're not, not going to say, hey, you know what, if, if the federal government came out with some loan forgiveness plan, then all these people would want to become cops. It's just not going to happen because that you know the policing profession has been so demoralized over the past, well, really since, since Michael Brown, right, since 2014. Um, and then more so uh, with uh, George Floyd, you know, in, in 2020. Um, so what we're looking at is, okay, w- what can we do when we, when we start thinking about, and the other, the other piece of this is, and then people want a more diverse workforce, right? They want more you know, female officers and they want more officers of color. They want people that re- reflect the community that they're serving, right? How are you going to recruit those people in when they're the ones that feel like they're downtrodden, right? So, you know, one of the things that we have conversations all the time, you know, particularly with Congress to say, we need to find a way to try and incentivize people coming from these, you know, whether it's, you know, Howard University or, you know, the historically, you know, black colleges, there is no magic bullet here. And there's no, you know, clearly the policing profession can't afford to do um, advertisements like the Marine Corps, right? Because we hear about that all the time. Why don't you, why don't you have a, you know, a plan to do you know, some advertising like the Marine Corps and you know, show the nobility of the profession and get people in? And Well, that's all great, but one, nobody can afford to do that. It's too expensive. And still, number two, you're going to recruit these people you know, into the policing profession. They're going to get here and realize, this isn't what I signed up for, you know? Um, and and I, I don't want to do this anymore because you know, I risk the, the chance of one getting hurt or two going to jail. One of the things you brought up on Terry, and, and it, it just sits in me forever, but everybody I know, you yourself included, took this job because we wanted to make a difference, because we wanted to help people, not because we had an opportunity to make a ton of money. Now, of course, money's in the equation. You know, we don't we don't work for free. Um, and, and clearly we've seen through the years that our pay is better. But when you start trying to bring someone to a profession solely based on the fact of, of money, um, I don't want to work with those people. I, I don't I, that's not that's not why we became police officers. We became police officers to help and to make a difference. But money becomes part of it. So here we are because there's a retention issue, because there's a recruitment issue. Every police department now, you go to work and you work on a four day shift. You're probably working overtime three of those four. You're forced to stay and we'll put in 16-hour days. And then what does the press do the very first week of every year? 
They file a FOIA request to find out what everybody in your police department got paid last year. And then they run it in the paper. So all of my neighbors know exactly how much money I made last year. Um, and suddenly I'm like an outcast. Well, he, he made $150,000 last year. He did. You know why? Because he got forced to work holidays. He got forced to work weekends. He got forced to work overtime when he came to work. And he's working or she's working on their third day, on their third double. And now they're getting called to his domestic violence and you expect him to go in like everything's just fine. They're beat up and they have no choice. As you know, you you can be forced in law enforcement to work overtime, whether you want to or not. And it's driving people away. Um, and and it, it, again, it, bu- it bugs me when they tie money into the equation and then make it look as though we're all money hounds and that's why we're in it. We're making the money yep. because you're not giving us a choice. You're 100% right, Billy. One of the issues that, you know, I think the most, one of the most demoralizing things about being in the profession is when you're a cop and, you know, you put in for a day off because you've got to go to a wedding or you've got your kid's birthday party or something like that, and the job tells you no and you're being ordered to work. And not only do you have to work your shift, you've got to work somebody else's shift because you have so many vacancies. So that will just destroy an agency and it, and it destroys individuals, and that's why people leave. But here, you know, it's, I'm going to raise another issue for you, which is when you when you look at challenges in recruitment and retention, now people are starting to lower the standards, agencies. And we've seen this movie before, right? We saw this in the late 80s, early 90s with the Rampart Division. We saw it down in Miami. We saw it out in Oakland where they lowered their standards. They hired people that actually had, some of them even had gang affiliations or, or had um, you know uh, assault and batteries in their background, their criminal records. And then they, that, those agencies fell apart as a result of it. And that's what we're starting to see here. We're, we're actually starting to see glimpses of it. That's exactly where, one of the things that precipitated the event in, in Memphis. Um, you know, those, those five officers, the five officers, I think three of them had criminal histories. Um, and, and at least four of them, they said, should have been removed from the academy for low performance. But they didn't. They kept them because they needed more bodies. That and the fact that the demands on police officers now as far as training goes and and upgrading and we don't complain, we don't not want it. But if you want college-educated people, well, you're going to have to, you know, whether pay to have them educated. What you did at Wellesley, I thought, was was fantastic, where um, you would take people in with a high school diploma, because in our state, that's all you need, that or a GED. But then you would you would put a demand on that. Within three years, they had to, I, if I'm wrong on this, fix me, uh, yeah. that that they needed a, uh, a, a an associate's degree. But you paid for them to have the associate's degree, and they all went and got it. And then, what was it, after five years, you needed a, a bachelor's. And then if you wanted to be promoted, you needed a master's. That's the way to go about doing it. But now they want to, like you say, the, the the willingness to lower the standards. So we're getting people that are, are subpar that we never would have had to accept in the past. And there's an old Texaco ad that said, pay me now or pay me later. And uh, that's what's going to happen. You're going you're to be paying. We're seeing it now. Like you said, we're paying out tens of millions of dollars um, because of a false arrest or somebody, a bad incarceration on, on, a, on a case. It's only going to get worse. We see it all the time now where they're removing the educational you know, component, component for hiring purposes, right? And the one thing that you know, all the data shows us is, is that a, a highly educated officer use, uses less force uh, and makes less arrests because they, they, they use better judgment. Um, and, and the data is there. And, but unfortunately, because you can't get people, they're saying, well, we'll, we'll, we'll take people with a you know, high school education um, and, and removing any higher education requirement from it. And, and I think the profession is going to be 
you know, the, the, the profession is definitely going to be hurt by it, and the profession is going to be in trouble in the next, you know, five to ten years. We hear a lot, uh, we hear this term a lot, community policing. And I'm not on a force, I've never served, but I'd love to know from each of you the true definition of that, what we're doing right when we're doing it, and what we need to do better. I know a lot of it is thrust upon those men and women in blue to do this, but what is community policing? How do you define it, Terry? Yeah, that's a great question, right? So I like to tell people, people say, hey, do you have a, you know, community policing, you know, project or, you know, in your organization? Your community policing is a philosophy, right? Everybody in the organization should be doing it. There shouldn't be some specialized community policing unit that you have, right? Um, It really is just being collaborative in in your approach to policing um, a community, right? So it's sitting down with the community and trying to problem solve and figure out what their, you know, kind of enforcement tolerance index is and, and whether, you know, what's more important to them. Is it, is it speeding cars? Is it loud noises? Is it, is it, you know, gang-related issues? Are there shootings? Um, it's working in partnership with the community to try and solve those problems. And, and unfortunately, as you start to see, you know, more and more demands being laid at the feet of the police and you start to see, you know, the numbers, you know, decreasing, you, you have less and less time to do that. So you end up just, just being responsive. And, and community policing, unfortunately, is one of the first things that kind of goes out the window when, when you're just going from call to call to call and trying to solve problems. Um, and you don't have that time and you don't have the resources to sit down with the community and, and kind of be preventative in the actions that you're going to take. So I, get, I look at community policing just being as a collaborative a, a, a approach to problem solving. Exactly right, Terry. I think too many people think community policing is is community relations. You know, having the ice cream truck on a hot day at the at the uh, the basketball courts is a nice thing, or running a, a you know a kids program is a nice thing, uh, but that's community relations. It's part of community policing, but it's not what community policing is. In a funny way, I was just thinking about as you were talking, what you're doing with Congress and what you're doing with the executive branch of government is community policing. You're sitting down at the table and you're bringing one side of the story and listening to their side of the story and then somewhere in the in, with the hopes of collaboration between the two. And, and that's what community policing is to me. And I didn't know what it was. I worked for a state policing agency and we didn't really engage in that because we didn't, we weren't a small community. Um, and when I went to work at a college and I was being interviewed, they said, well, you know, how do you feel about community policing? I went, oh, it's great. Yeah, I'm all, I'm all about it. I didn't know anything about it. But I quickly learned, and I loved it, that community policing was me dealing with a faculty and an administration that weren't, I'm not going to say they were anti-cop, but they, it wasn't like they embraced us completely. Uh, and I had a great, a great pool of, of offices that we worked together and we won over the administration. We won over the faculty. We won over the students because that's all part of it. And then we were in an inner city campus and we had a community that surrounded us. We had to make friends within that community and, and listen to them and then listen to us and collaborate on many things. And I loved every bit of it. But if you can't get people that are willing to sit down at the table and discuss things and show from a law enforcement point of view, we want to be at this table with you. We want to listen to what your needs are. Then we can't get there. And, and you're right, Terry, with, with, with cutbacks in, in more people having to be on patrol, we're not getting that, that kind of input that we've, we've been able to, to do in the past. And if, we, and if we can't have community policing, we just can't function. We just can't. No, well, it's, it's interesting because, you know, like the Biden administration that uh, talked about putting uh, $100 million into an account in the cop's office to get more, or more so that 
agencies can hire more cops and put them out in the street. And I said, they, they, they can't get them. Right. You can't, you can't yeah. hire the cops. You, know, you, you need to make that investment another way, whether it's in technology or something else to make the, you know, make the job easier and make the you know, uh, police officers more efficient. But don't just throw money at it to say, hey, the, you know, go out and hire more, more officers. It's just not there. You, you don't have the people to do it. You know? um, it but, but, but your point is well taken, Bill. You're right. Just about everything that we do is from a community policing standpoint. You know? If you sat down with somebody who was interested, a young person interested in the police as a career, what advice would you offer? What suggestions would you make at this point? Maybe they're teetering, not sure what direction they're going to go in. We'll start with you, Bill. Stay the course. Think of why you want to be a police officer. And, and when I teach, this is, and I teach recruits, this is what I, I start most of my classes off talking about. Never lose sight of why you wanted to be a police officer. And, and everybody will say, I want to help people and, and I want to make a difference. That's why you're here. So there's going to be a lot of noise. There's going to be a lot of people holding up cameras, filming everything that you do. Um, it's not. It's not going to be easy. You know, so come into it. Don't come into it thinking um, that you've got the innovative answers that are going to change the world because they might not. I'm not saying lose your innovative thoughts, but but. Um, it's a more difficult decision than it ever was because mm-hmm. it, it, it involves relationships and family members and people um, that you need their support. And, and Terry, we hopefully can get in a little bit of it because I think the second biggest issue between recruitment and retention and the annual conference points this out. We went from a couple of classes in Office of Health and Wellness now to, geez, I'd say a third of the classes have to do with, with health and wellness because we're, we're having – physical issues that that are somewhat supported by mental health issues that we never I'm not going to say it was never part of our job of course it is but now the way that you're treated by the public the way that, that you're not you know, uh, being accepted because you're a cop simply because you're wearing a, a uniform. They don't want to know who you are. They don't want to know what your background is. It's a little like uh, post-Vietnam when the vets return. Very much so. Isn't it? Very much so. Yes. yes. Terry, your thoughts on the same question? You know, George, what I would say is, you know, from my experience on the, on the job, I, I wouldn't, if I had it all to do over again, I'd I do it the, uh, the same way. You know, it really is, the, you know, the greatest job in the world. And to Bill's point, you really get out there and you get to get to help people. And, and you know, there are moments of boredom and there are moments of, you know, sheer panic. Um, but, you know, I, what I would tell somebody is make sure you get out there, get all the education that you that you can. Remember that you're there to serve the community, that you're not, you know, this, this you know, invading force or, you know, uh, it's really important to have the community's input. Um, but it will be the most satisfying job that you, you could ever have. You know, there are going to be those difficult days for sure. But, you know, I, I think that the, the days that you have that are more satisfying are more than the ones that, that you had difficulty. We can all look back on our careers and see different times that we did make a difference, that we did, and that difference may be with a grieving family, that difference may be in, you know, securing a conviction uh, against someone that took someone else's life. It's not the satisfaction of somebody going to jail. It's the satisfaction that your work was validated by a jury, by a judge. And at the end of the day, when that jury comes back with a verdict and you get a hug from somebody's loved one, you never forget it. Pretty powerful. And 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 that's more than any money you can ever put in my checking account. And that begs the question uh, in terms of today's political climate and uh, DAs in various cities who have certainly taken a different approach than previous DAs and uh, AGs and so forth in terms of 
letting the bail laws slip and letting people out. We're seeing the results of that, Terry, now. And it must be so frustrating for law enforcement to arrest people to see them turned around on the street again so quickly. Yeah, no, Jordan, that, I, I, I talked a little bit about that earlier. And when we're seeing the rise in violent crime, and you know, particularly during 2021 and then 2022, we saw the, you know, the huge rise in, in, in homicides as well. And a lot of that was, were folks just not being held accountable, whether it was pandemic related because the courts were closed and, you know, they weren't hearing their cases or it was those, you know, so-called progressive you know, uh, prosecutors and, and the change in zero uh, bail laws and people just being arrested and, and then put back out the street, nobody being held accountable. Um, it's frustrating. It's dangerous. Um, you know, it's one of those things. And then on the other side of it, I go back to, you know, you see these, these prosecutors wanting to prosecute you know, uh, police officers for doing their jobs. One of the worst cases that, you know, it was just so depressing for me to watch was that poor Kim Potter case out there in Minnesota. She clearly thought she had her taser in her hand when she made that split-second decision on that car stop and then shot the person inside, and it was a mistake. And she was prosecuted for it and sent to prison for it. And, you know, um, you know, for me, when I, when I look at, at, at a case like that, people hear, you know, I hear it all the time. I even heard it during her trial where people talked about, you know, the amount of training that the police have. And there's no way that a cop could ever make a, you know, a, a, a mistake like that. Guess what? I, I, you know, an athlete that you have in high school has more training than most police officers get in a year, right? You get your 40 hours of in-service, and during that 40 hours, you know, you're going to have maybe eight hours of firearms. You know, the rest of it's going to be, whether it's domestic violence, whether it's constitutional law, criminal law, motor vehicle law, all the other stuff. And, you know, unfortunately, they just, you know, the training dollars aren't there. There's not the time there, and cops can make mistakes. So um, I, I just, you know, that was... That was just one example of, you know, when you look at, I mean, I just heard the other day that there are some prosecutors that are actually standing up cold case units in their office just to look at past uses of force cases in, the, in their police agencies and the jurisdictions so that they can go back and, and, and kind of relitigate these again. Absolutely. The, the thought uh, that's put out there is that the purpose of the cold case is to, to take a second look at old cases and solve them. And what they're doing is they're going back into old use of force cases and going after police officers for something that happened 15 years ago that they had been cleared from. You know, I look at and I see laws not being enforced that we always enforce and it drives me crazy. And then I, I realize, well, when a DA comes out and says, here's a list of 10 or 12 things that I'm not going to prosecute, what do you think is going to happen? Why, why am I going to go try to arrest somebody for something that they did when you're telling me you're not going to prosecute it? Then I'm going to get charged or sued for false arrest. And then I'm going to wind up on a Brady list somewhere because I, I made a false arrest. And it's not a false arrest. It's a good arrest that you refuse to prosecute. That probably is more demoralizing to me. They're supposed to be the intelligent people in the room. Um, they're supposed to be the ones that are there that we elected to represent us and prosecute people. And when you say the purpose of me being here is to let people go, I sat in a room recently with a, with a, a fellow who, who, will, who will remain nameless, but he's a high-ranking police official. He's black. And he said, you know, the biggest problem that we have is we have judges who have white guilt, and so they're allowing offenders to leave their courtroom with low or no bail. 
And do you think they're going to offend in the community that that judge lives in? No. They're coming back into my community to reoffend in my community and hurt the very people that 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 the judge is supposed to be protecting. And it 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 struck me. It just really struck me as it's the truest words I'd heard and I don't know how long. When DAs let let bad people back out on the street, they're not offending people in those other communities that they're never going to wind up in. They're going back and they're hurting their own people. And that's what's so infuriating. And I, I heard today when I was on my way here, Washington, D.C., like you said, Terry, there are 1,000 cops down. They just crested yeah. 100 homicides this year. 100 homicides. We're not even at the halfway mark. And I know yeah, Philly and Baltimore and Chicago and, New, you know, are way above that. So I, I, don't, I don't know. That's, that's the part that frustrates me. You know, as I listen to both of you, and I'm so honored to be among you, I keep thinking about the little squibs I catch in the good news sections of the newspaper or online, and they're very tiny, unfortunately. They should be more celebrated, that feature police officers going above and beyond, just doing their duty, helping children, helping accident victims, funding uh, charity rides. I mean, doing the things that are not dramatic. You don't see them on TV, the cops on TV uh, doing any of these things, and it's not reported on. Can we do more to report on that, and why should we? Terry? Yeah, no, Jordan, that's a, that's a great question, and, and we actually, it, it's one that comes up all the time. We talk about it. it we're ju- just not really good at telling our story. We're just not, you know, cops go out there, as I said earlier, they just go out there, they keep their head down, they do their job, and they're not not looking for the accolades. I mean, Bill talked about it. They're not looking for whether it's, you know, hey, I want to get a bonus and need to be paid more for that. They just want to go out there and they help people. And unfortunately, we're just not really good at, at telling the story. And, you know, the news media, um, quite frankly, you know, if it, if it bleeds, it leads, right? So if they don't have that in the story and they can't tell, you know, something, you know, you know that, was, that was terrible that happened, they don't want to hear about it. So it's really hard for us to kind of break in and, and tell those good news stories. And as you said, millions and millions of, of police contacts, you know, every day, um, and most of them are, are really positive. And then you have the occasional really bad one, something that goes sideways, something that goes wrong, um, and the entire profession is demonized by that. And when you look at it, that could be, it, it, again, it could be doctors, it could be lawyers, it could be journalists, right? Um, that, but because it's the policing profession and we're really the most you know, visible arm of government, uh, and, and we're held to a higher standard. And I get that because, you know, the one thing that we can do that nobody else can do is take people's liberties away, right? Um, and so we should be held to a higher standard. But but in fairness, you know, we should be able to, to tell the good news stories. And I think when, when if you go back, and, and I, I hate to go, you know, down a rabbit hole here, but if you go back to 2015, uh, 2016, we were the ones, it was IACP and the policing profession that pushed to have a, a use of force data collection piece. We wanted to collect the data because the Washington Post was collecting data right, right from open source, and then they were reporting on it. And we're saying, hey, wait a minute, that's our data. We should be the ones that collect it. We should be the ones that analyze it. And we should look at your know, use of force cases. And, but more importantly, People, you know, agencies should report when they don't use force, right? That's even more important. Mm-hmm. So people hear the good news that, hey, you know what? Out of, out of you know, 300 agencies in the state of Massachusetts, you know, only 10 had, you know, use of force cases, particularly deadly use of force cases, you know, through the whole year. So we need to be better at telling our story. I'm probably going to go out on a limb when I say this, right? But, and we learned 
back when we were in college in, law, in criminal justice about um, Sir Robert Peel and his his points of, of policing, right? Um, I don't have them in front of me, so I can't quote from them, but I know a big part of it is we serve the public. We, we exist because the public wants us, and we follow what the public wants. And so we see, and I can't say this is in every single agency, but something happens. The narrative gets out there, and the narrative gets out from people that have agendas. And that's what the press runs with, was their agenda. We want to respond to that, but because we work for the city or we work for the state, we have a governor or a mayor or a town administrator who says, no, 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 you're not going to talk to the police. You're not going to, you're not going to put your side of the story out there. Or a prosecutor that says, you're not going to put your side of the story out there. So the only part of the narrative that gets out there is those with the special interest. And we get pounded for that. And, and you know, I know from just dealing with law enforcement officers who get angry with their chiefs that they're not more outspoken on their behalf. But they're told that they can't be. And we're hired by the city. We're hired by the state. And if we don't follow the rules, then we're not the chiefs anymore. We're not going to, you know, be the, the head of department. <laughs> this sounds, you know, self-serving, but it's always bothered me. And I'm not one that likes to be in the public eye at all. But I'm unencumbered, if you will. I don't, I don't carry a badge anymore. I don't carry a weapon anymore. And so I can, I can do a podcast. I can write a book, which I wrote two different books. And the purpose of the book isn't to pat us ourselves on the back. It's just to show this is what law enforcement really is. This is what a DA's office, a prosecutor's office really is. This is how we interact with everybody. Um, just to get that side of the story out there. And so when people said you really ought to do a podcast, I was resistant as can be. But I also realized I can't keep really against not having a narrative, being in a position where I can have a narrative. So uh, that's kind of why we're sitting here. And if we can get a podcast going that has, that shows our positive sides, that has guests that can show positive sides of law enforcement, and at least there's something out there that people can listen to that's different than than the other narrative. And, and that's probably the primary reason, Terry, I'm so glad that you were willing to come on and you know, we've had these talks around fire pits for years, and we will continue to. Um, and that's the best time of our lives. Because, but, but at some point, we got to have our point out so that other people hear who we are and not who we are, we're made out to be. You can have opinions, but opinions have to be based on facts, and you don't, you don't get to make up your facts. So let's talk about the factual part of what law enforcement is and who we are. Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm actually really glad, uh, Bill, that you brought up, you know, uh, Sir Robert Peel and the Peelian you know, principles. I took those nine principles, I printed them out, I put them in a in a frame, and I mounted them on the wall in my you know, uh, uh, police department uh, in the lobby, you know, for everybody mm-hmm. to see, because you're 100% right, right? The police are the community, and the community are the police. Um, you know, these cops were raised on a farm someplace and then just dropped into a community, you know? Um, and But it's just really important for us to be able to tell the story. And, and, and you're right. A lot of people, a lot of police chiefs are encumbered by that because, you know, their, their mayor or their city council or, the, you know, the town council or whatever tell them that they, that they can't put that information out there. Um, and that's why you see a little bit of a difference between, you know, the police because they're police chiefs because they're appointed and sheriffs because they're elected. And we hear that a lot where people will say to us, well, how come the police chiefs aren't out there, you know, speaking on this issue? Well, because they're appointed and they have to answer somebody as compared to, you know, a sheriff who's elected and, and they have to just answer to their, you know, their their uh, community. It's funny you say it because uh, within the last couple of months, there's been a couple of real nasty uh, homicide-related cases and sheriffs have got up and spoken and people have said to me, oh, well, 
I can't believe he said that. I said, well, because he's elected and he needs to get reelected and, and mm-hmm. wants to be reelected because this is what he wants to be. He can do that. It's when you wind up, you're appointed by an agency, you can be gone in a heartbeat. And we've seen it mm-hmm. over, how many times we've seen it in this country over the last four years where chiefs have, have basically been you know, extinguished because they, they were outspoken. Uh, not that they weren't telling the truth, but it wasn't what the city fathers wanted to hear. And, you know, going back to the Peely and stuff, I, you know, we took that in college and you took a test on it and you threw it away. And then suddenly you start to realize, boy, that, that everything in that is, it's over, two, what, over 200 years old now and it makes perfect sense. And when you go to London, you realize the Bobbies are named after Mr. Peel. Yes. That's exactly right. Uh, yep, yep. yep. Well, Terry, I really want to thank you for being with us today. And uh, I've thought from the beginning when I started thinking of a podcast that there would be no greater guest uh, that I could have on that could express uh, in a much better way than I ever will policing where we are today, where we're headed. And I have tremendous admiration for you because you could be retired right now and you could be living in a nice sunny community and you're not. You're the head of the spear for all of us in law enforcement. You're the guy that should be sitting at a table with a a Cory Booker and a Tim Scott uh, and others to discuss uh, and come to some rational understanding of who we are, what we do, and then and then let them see how that we're willing to adapt and adjust to the things that we need to do. I'll get off my soapbox now, but uh, again, I cannot thank you enough for coming on and, and being our first guest. And as time goes on uh, and other issues arise that, that we, we, we may want to discuss, whether it's me calling you or you calling me, the, the forum is wide open for you at any time. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I appreciate the, you know, the opportunity to be on. But I appreciate you doing this and, you know, elevating the voice of law enforcement. I think, you know, you, you mentioned it earlier, you know, that you using this platform now that, you know, to exemplify all the good things that the, that the profession does and the folks in it do. Um, and again, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for your service as well and your family. But um, I really appreciate you, know, you, you taking the time to have me on. You've been listening to Powers on Policing with Bill Powers, retired state police detective lieutenant, active educator, and published author. Please subscribe and download this podcast, available on all platforms, and we would greatly appreciate your ratings and reviews. Find out more at powersonpolicing.com.